This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, questions about church, really anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, Tuesdays, we don't have anything to talk about except questions. So let me get right to questions while we await your calls. The first one is from Oliver. And it's um, more of a statement than a question. He said, I often think that church services should be more worship and less preaching. And then he asks me for my thoughts. Um, Oliver, it's a hard one for me to address. We we do both. Um, but But the Word is the foundation of the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's what we're told in our Bible. And if you're going to know what that truth is, if you're going to have a strong foundation, it's got to be from the Word. And we give um, more time to um, the teaching of the Word. We do typically 40 to 45 minutes uh, a service. It's on Wednesday. Okay, I admit it. Sometimes I go almost an hour. But um, um, the, the foundation of the work that God is doing is always His Word. Always His Word. Now, I've been in churches or I have seen churches who ought to do less preaching because what they're preaching is nonsense. But the reality, uh, Oliver, is that, that the, the church service needs to be a, a, a mixture of worship and the teaching of the word. We need to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And uh, while, while worship is wonderful, uh, the fact is that during difficult times, when, when you're under trials or when you're under spiritual attack, goosebumps, the kind of goosebumps that you get from worship, aren't going to protect you. The Word, the Word, the Word will protect you. And so that's my thoughts. I don't know, obviously, Oliver, where you go to church, and I don't know what kind of preaching is being done. But honestly, the preaching of the Word of God is the most exciting thing that happens in a church service. I'm not talking about a presentation. I'm not talking about putting on a show. 
Uh, preaching should not be a performance. It's simply the foretelling of God's word, the declaring of the gospel. Um, here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. And here's how we use it in our day-to-day lives. And I always think, Oliver, um, you know, when I come up during the last worship song and I'm able to look out at the people in the crowd and I'll take a minute and, and just, first of all, thank the Lord for the people. Just thank you, Lord, that that you trust us to be good stewards of your word. Um, but then I'll say, Lord, they they spent their time to come here. They made an effort to come. And I always say with to the Holy Spirit, let's give them the best we've got. And I want them to be able to leave every service with something that they can use in their lives on a very practical level, something that they can use in their lives every day. So that's our goal. Uh, The Lord has blessed that. But uh, while I love worship, um, I think I've got the best worship team in the world. Now, not just because Paul is on it, but that's part of it. But I know every one of their hearts, and worship is really, really sweet. And I don't have to like the song that they're singing in order to to be blessed by it. But what I want to do is I'm looking at the people, and I know their stories. I'm thanking God for the work that he's doing in their hearts and then through them to others. So worship is really important, but it is a lesser priority than the teaching of the Word. And often my worship pastor, Elaine, will, will in his prayer, he'll say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity, the freedom to worship you in song. And now as we open our Bibles, we choose to worship you in the Word. And so I think the whole service then uh, is a worship service. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Michael. He says, in my church this past weekend, and this question might be a little older than this past weekend, but in my church this past weekend, there was a homeless man who kept interrupting the pastor. Has something like that ever happened to you, and what did you do about it? Should we be more patient with the homeless? Michael, one of the things, and this is a a good follow-up to the question that I just had. Um, if, if the teaching or the preaching of the Word is the primary focus of the service, then we have to provide as distraction-free a service or an atmosphere as we possibly can. And our ushers would, if somebody was disrupting the service, uh, they would go up to that person and and very nicely, but but securely, I mean, they would escort him or her uh, out of the church. Now, it's not because we don't love them, and we'll make clear, we'll try to minister to them uh, as they are as they are going out or as they're being let out, and we'll talk to them before they go. But um, it, it's because that 45 minutes or so is dedicated to the teaching of the Word, and if people can't hear the teaching of the Word, if they're going to be distracted by something somebody is doing or saying, well, then the focus shifts from the Word of God and the Lord Jesus. The focus shifts to that person who is causing the distraction. Um, We have had this happen to us. Uh, Only once have we ever had to ask somebody to leave, or or only once did we have uh, somebody who um, continued to yell something and he was just escorted out. Uh, and that's a pretty good track record after 28, almost 29 years. Um, but but I think it's happened to everybody. Uh, there are people who are hurting. There are people who are broken. 
Um, and, and uh, yeah, we need to be patient with them. But at the same time, we can't make everybody else pay. Now, Michael, let me also add this, because this is where um, we get some heat sometimes. People don't understand. Um, we try our best to direct people with children to send their kids to our children's ministry. Um, if children are in the sanctuary, whether they're babies or or younger kids, older than babies but young younger kids, uh, if they're causing distractions, if they can't be still, uh, then they are impacting the people around them, uh, their ability to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. And since that is the direction or the, the, the reason that we're doing the church service, we ask people very seriously to please um, take your children to children's ministry. And if they say, no, I don't want to, I want my kids in the service with me, we'll just tell them, well, then they, they need to behave. If they start to be a disruption, would you please get up and take them out in the foyer? We have speakers out in our foyer and uh, and they can hear the service. But the focus needs to be on a distraction-free environment. And while we can't do that in a pristine fashion, we sure want to do the best that we can. And I would have done the same thing uh, probably that your pastor did. The, the, the security team or the ushers would have ushered him out. No, I don't think we should be more patient with them whenever there's a, a sanctuary full of people and one person is grabbing all the attention, well, by definition, then then we need to get rid of that distraction. Now, remember, I said earlier, when we take them out, we will minister to them. We'll ask them uh, what's going on and why the distraction, and we'll, we'll, we'll minister to them. We'll share the gospel with them. But we want to create that uh, environment that is distraction-free as much as we possibly can uh, so that we can focus on the teaching of the Word of God. There's nothing that happens on a Sunday that is as important as the teaching of God's living and active Word. Four zero ninety five eighty five. That's area code two one zero, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's a question from Reggie. Uh, Reggie says, I'm confused by Jesus saying that we should be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Why cold? Well, Reggie, because Jesus is saying that's at least an honest reaction. Jesus is saying, look, the guy that is pretending to be a Christian, but he's not living it. The guy who says, praise the Lord and hallelujah and all that stuff, but his life is is sort of burdened by sin and, and is not committed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is basically saying, look, that's dishonest. You know, lots of people say I'm a Christian, and there's absolutely no evidence that would suggest that they're really, truly born again. So that's why it's important. And Jesus is simply saying, look, uh, be hot, be on fire. Paul writes, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Um, but Jesus said, look, if you're not going to do that, at least be honest with me and say that, um, uh, look, I don't care. I tell our church all the time, at least when you're honest, the Lord can deal with you. The Holy Spirit can deal with you. But, and here's the but, if you're not honest, your heart becomes so hard that the Holy Spirit just sort of walks away. Very, very, very important. Reggie of Jesus wants us to be hot or cold, He's just saying, be honest about who you really and truly are. 
Thank you for the question, Reggie. I think I had that question about a week ago or so. We have got a um, phone call. We got um, Celia from Bandera on line one. Celia, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, sir. Um, in Bible study on Sunday, we were having a discussion, and I, I couldn't, I, I didn't get it clear in my mind. Back in the Old Testament with Abraham and, and Noah and all of those people, did they know that there was a heaven and a hell back then? And, and in present day, do, does the Jewish faith believe in a heaven and a hell? Yeah, so let me answer, answer the first, uh, second question first. Uh, yes, Jews believe in heaven and hell, um, but their perspective on how to get there obviously is different. So it's really important. Uh, Jews believe that heaven is theirs by birthright as Jews. What do the religious leaders say to Jesus over and over? We know who our father is. We're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, then you would believe in the things that I'm saying. They they just don't believe in Jesus as, as the forgiver, the only forgiver of their sins. So uh, Jews today, yes, they have a very clear picture of of judgment. God is going to judge um, non-Jews or Gentiles. Um, uh, their picture of heaven, of course, is less clear because until you believe in Jesus Christ and are born again, then there is no possible way that you can really have a clear picture of heaven. In the Old Testament, their their picture or their view of um, of afterlife was, uh, I think, pretty clear but but vague. And by that, Celia, I mean that they didn't have a concept of salvation as we understand salvation. Remember, Jews believed that just by being called by God, they didn't need to be saved, that they already were. It's it's sort of like a Catholic today. I, well, I've been baptized into the church, and I don't need no. You must be born again. That's why Jesus said that to Nicodemus. Uh, but their 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 perspective on heaven uh, was different. Uh, but but Jews have always believed in judgment. God made it very very clear. Uh, even though they didn't listen to his warnings about judgment for them, God made it really really clear. So that's the answer. Thank you, Celia. Appreciate it. Let's go Lucy from Universal City on line two. Lucy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. <clears throat> the theater has my, my throat and my nasal all covered up. <laughs> as, but, you can, uh, as you can uh, tell, I join you. We're all in this together. Yeah, we uh, are. Come February okay. 28th. <laughs> so um, Calvary Crafters has started again. Uh, we usually take a break during the Christmas and New Year's and all that. So um, we are studying the book of James. And mm. today we made it from verse 1 to verse 18. And we had a lot of really good conversation. And there was a couple of questions that the ladies asked about. Um one of them has to do with um, the focus of James and his um, his audience, who he was writing to. Um, we we discovered through commentaries, and and it says it right there in verse one 
that uh, that it's um, basically to Jewish believers. Uh, and then the other question that we had was in verse 18 when it talks about um, the first fruits. Uh, who is he actually talking about? Um, the best we can figure out is that um, this was the first generation of believers. And I'd, I'd like to just ask the question and listen off the air. Okay. Uh, I mean, off the phone. Okay. Um, basically, um, the, the looking forward from that point on, um, it, it sounded like James was expecting much more of a harvest, and praise the Lord, it has been. Um, there were several points that were addressed, but especially moving was that of staying close to Jesus, not being tossed around like um, uh, wishy-washy from uh, on the fence kind of uh, a walk with Jesus, uh, not being consumed by the waves um, and not being tossed around that our faith would be on a firm foundation. Well, I just wanted to ask you, can you um, share with us what your uh, feeling is about uh, the book of James, and what is it that we need to know about going forward in this study? I'll do that, Lucy, but can I borrow one minute from you? Sure. Okay, yeah. when did you tell, tell people what Calvary Crafters is, what they do. Oh, awesome. Well, Calvary Crafters is one of the sponsored groups, sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We are a group of women who like to be crafty, uh, arts and crafts, handmade items. Um, we do painting and jewelry and a variety of others. But first, we start with Bible study. Then we do prayer and fellowship. And our focus is to be a, of assistance to our church body if there's anything that needs our, our creative touch or um something that needs to be fixed, any um, any particular issues. We've made curtains for the church. We, we've uh, done several things for the women's retreat gifts from time to time. We, we will be in charge of one of the little gifts that we give away. Um, and we're, uh, we're always happy to help if we can. Um, we have a really neat group of ladies that are growing in Christ, and as the leader, I've been um, I've been at at the head of this group maybe since um, 2005 or so, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I'm just so amazed how God has grown us all together. Uh, it makes me cry to think of how we've grown together and as a sisterhood as well. 
Uh, See, that's, that's, Lucy, that, that's the beauty of fellowship. And uh, one of the things that I know that I've seen some of the ladies do is they're, they're, they actually mend our chairs. You know, our chairs get beat up pretty good with all the setting up and taking down. And I've seen them mending chairs and uh, making pillows for joy of Jesus and all kinds of things. Thank you, Lucy. I'll answer the question about James now as well. James is, is, is an interesting book. One of the things that we forget as we read James is the environment in which he was writing. Uh, at this point, the church was um, Jewish. James um, it was, was sort of the acknowledged leader of the church in Jerusalem. James today would be accused of being, unfairly accused, by the way, of being uh, legalistic. And they would, they would accuse, we would accuse him of being legalistic because he he seems unyielding uh, in in the in his in his call to action, you know. Here's here's your faith. Make your faith go to work, kind of thing. And uh, James is misunderstood with that. So when he's writing, he's writing to that first century church. Uh, he's writing to that first century church, and uh, he's writing to Jews. Uh, James was known as uh, James the Just. Um, or or old camel knees was his excuse me uh, because of his propensity to be on his knees for prayer uh, and he's simply uh, trying to uh, turn everybody's attention to heaven I love verse 17 the verse before you asked every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heaven and light who does not change like shifting shadows he's trying to get people to look up instead of looking out so uh, it, it's just a very practical book and if it's read in its context and understood uh, in the context of the time it was written uh, it is a, a, a book filled with a lot of grace uh, a book that's filled with a lot of practical instruction, and uh, you guys will enjoy your study through the book of James. It's interesting that when we get small groups together, and we, we do get small groups together uh, through through service like this, um, almost always they want to go to the book of James. We get about halfway through the book of James and Really, this is pretty straightforward, pretty direct. Well, one of the reasons I love James is because of just how direct he is. Thank you, Lucy, and God bless you for all of your faithful service over the years. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anonymous. Um, he says or she says, if I miss the rapture, will I still be able to be saved? Um, people will be saved uh, during the Great Tribulation. Um, so yeah, the answer is yes, people will still be able to be saved. But when people ask me this question this way, Anonymous, I'm always thinking, well, their thought process is this. Well, you know, I can have fun now, and if the rapture happens, I'll know it's true, and I'll just give my life to Jesus Christ later. That attitude, that approach will cause your heart to harden so much that you won't want to be saved. I want you to think about it this way. Right now, getting saved costs nothing. Now, we've got to do away with sin for sure. We've got to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. But it's easy. We have the free will to do it. If you won't give your life to Jesus Christ while it's easy, while it's free, while Jesus is near and calling us, 
What makes you think you give your life to Jesus Christ when it's going to cost you your life? In the Great Tribulation, people aren't even going to be able to eat. They can't buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. And when they take the mark of the beast, they're going to know that that's the end for them. So it's a little bit arrogant to think, well, I'll just give my life to Jesus if I see that the rapture is real. So uh, it, it's a very dangerous question, and, and, and it's pretty shaky ground spiritually to be walking on. So here's what I would really, really urge that you do. Open your Bible. Um, read the Gospel of John. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. The minute you know that what's written there is true, then that's the only time to give your life to Jesus Christ. Paul will write in the book of Romans today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And this this whole idea of hardening hearts, uh, anonymous, um, the enemy gets involved. And um, once our heart gets hard, we can't even hear or respond to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be starting, not this Wednesday, but a week from Wednesday, in the book of Amos in the Old Testament. And God is saying, you know, for your sins, for three of your sins, even for four. And the idea there is that we come to a place where we cross that line of sin, and, and we've, we've, we've crossed that line of hardness of heart where we don't even want to respond. And then God's only prerogative there is justice and judgment. And so um, just be really, really careful. Be honest about your position in Christ. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. As you can tell, I'm really struggling with the mountain cedar, so I apologize, but I'm going to keep doing the program. So um, let me go to this question. It is from Tony. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, what is the leadership structure at your church? Tony, Calvary Chapel is a pastor-led church. So uh, the leadership structure at our church starts with me. Um, um, I'm not a leader among equals. I am uh, the one through whom God gives the, the direction of the church, those who are in leadership, my pastors and elders, and I have both staff pastors and elders, uh, they understand coming on that their responsibility is to support the leadership or the vision that God has given me to lead the church. So at our church, we are a pastor-led church, and we believe that is the model given um, all the way through the Old Testament. God chooses a man, whether it's Moses or Joshua or any of the judges, God chooses a man 
And then through that man, um, God ministers to others. And and so that's our leadership structure. Uh, I have a a group of staff pastors. We've got, I don't know, 10 or 11 staff pastors here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, And they all have specific responsibilities, but they are also all of them involved in pastoral ministry with the people as well. And then we have elders. Our board of elders, it's a local board. It's people that are in the church. Um, and really, their function is a legal function. Um, decisions have to be made and voted on uh, we, we, before we enter into contracts or deals on buildings or or uh, spend large amounts of money. Um, the leadership has to approve that. And that's really uh, uh, to, to uh, be in compliance with the legal uh, responsibilities of being a church, a 5013C um, structure. So that is our leadership structure. We believe uh, clearly that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, I understand what the pitfalls are. If I become a false teacher or if I am a dictator or a tyrant, if I'm spiritually abusing people, then those men would stand up and call me out on that sin. Um, but uh, Apart from that, just in terms of the general direction of the church, um, the, the Lord has given me direction, um, and and then that's the way we move. One thing that, that I'll say about our leadership structure, it gives me a lot of freedom to, to by faith, follow what the Lord is leading us to do, Tony. And uh, I'll give you an example. We have a free ministry here. We have a free school we have a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office. Uh, we have a, a, a free home where women in dangerous or abusive situations can come and they can live and be safe and grow in their walk with the Lord. And then a bunch of other things that we're doing. But if if we required a vote of the church, a congregational form of government, which, by the way, is the one thing the Bible makes clear is not of the Lord, um, or, or if we had elders who had to approve everything, there's no way that that uh, a group of men together would ever have said, yeah, free school makes sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, I am so blessed. Uh, Tony, I, my, my first two elders, now we've been here now for almost 29 years. Uh, my first two elders from year two are still elding with me here at the church. And uh, we've had to add to that group because as the church grew, so did our people, uh, the, the need for leadership grow. Uh, but they're involved in uh, ministry here at the church, uh, and they've been with us a very long time, and uh, we have a really, really wonderful relationships. I'm just going to note from a producer, we have 11 pastors and five elders. Does that 11 include me? No. Okay, 11 besides me, so in total, 12. Tony, the real leader at Calvary Chapel San Antonio is Paula. <laughs> She's laughing at me now. But um, she is my primary partner. She's the one that I run everything through. If it's important, if it deals with Calvary Chapel's future, then um, I want to be sure that she's walking in agreement with me. And she's um, sort of God's red light, green light, yellow light. Um, that's her function. If if she prays about something, um, I'll wait to, until... Uh, I know that we're together, walking together on it, and then I'll present it to the elders and pastors of the church. Thank you for the question, Tony. Appreciate it. Here's a question from Michael. 
No, I'm sorry. It's Michelle. Says she is laughing. Uh, Michelle says, how and why did Satan get access to the Garden of Eden? Michelle, I have no clue. Uh, I know he got it with the permission of God. Uh, My question, Michelle, is always, well, God, why did you do that? I would have kept that serpent out of the garden. But, But really, we understand that Satan is a servant of God. Not a willing servant, certainly not a loving servant, but God uses even that which opposes him to accomplish his will. And one of the things that had to happen from the very first people, Adam and Eve, they had to have a choice. And God gave them everything, and they saw that everything was good. They had fellowship with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. But but they had to know their responsibility to choose to serve God. Think about this. They knew nothing but good. And so God put one tree, the tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. I repeat, up to that point, they knew only good. And and Satan then became God's servant. And Satan was used to force Adam and Eve to make a choice of their own free will. Now, from Adam and Eve in the garden to every human that's ever lived, we've had to make a choice to serve God. God has never forced anybody to serve him. We have to live with the consequences if we choose not to, and that consequence is eternal judgment. But but he's never forced anybody to serve him. So Satan was God's servant by presenting to Eve first and then to Adam that choice. And um, would it have been easier if all they ever knew was good? The answer is certainly yes. However, then God wouldn't have been able to say to them, I know you love me. They made the choice. They blew it. And in their repentance, they proved that they really did love God. Of course, that was what issued the entrance of sin into the world, and that's ruined our world ever since then. So um, that's how they got access through the the, the will of God. Um, why? That's a little harder one, Michelle, for me to answer because from my perspective, all I can think about is that that I would have kept Satan out. You know, the other question I have that's similar to that, Michelle, I get it on this program from time to time, is, is why does God allow Satan access to the throne of, of heaven? I don't know. I wouldn't let Satan in if it were me. But God's plan is greater, infinitely so, than anything I can imagine. So uh, we just know that God has a purpose. Thank you. Uh, Mark says, Pastor Ron, I visited your church and noticed you do not have any crosses. Do you not think that is inappropriate? Mark, no, I don't think it's not inappropriate at all. Um, The cross of Jesus Christ is paramount. It is central in everything that we do here at at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, We don't have a cross We are living in a time, I like to call Calvary Chapel an Acts 29 church, and I don't mean the the, the organization Acts 29, but we're still writing the end of the story. In 2024 now, we're still writing the end of the story until Jesus returns for his church. And Acts, of course, the book of Acts is, is most rightly called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and so uh, if we have an emblem, so to speak, it would be the dove, the descending dove um, that we saw at Jesus' baptism, um, because what we want 
is everything would be done by the Spirit of God. Now, if I was trying to diminish the cross or refusing to preach the cross, if I wasn't preaching the whole counsel of God, then I would say, yeah, maybe that would be suspicious. But um, the idea that we have to have a cross to represent the Lord or we have to have a cross on display is simply not something that we do. We do have one big cross mark. We use it um, on Good Friday. And then uh, we bring it over to our Easter services, our Resurrection Sunday services, um, and we, we we do it in a way I think that's that's uh, appropriate. Um, we will nail our our individual sins or whatever it is the Lord's dealing with us on that cross, and then of course we recognize on Easter Sunday that that empty tomb um, validates that we have the power to keep those things that we nailed to the cross on the cross. But the idea of of um, having a cross for decorative purposes, I think, is silly. It's not necessary. Um, you know, at Joy of Jesus, we have a cross, that same big cross. So we're not, we're not denying the cross at all. Uh, but what we want to do and the message we want to communicate is what we do is of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And that's why our emblem is a descending dove. So, Mark, I hope that um, doesn't stumble you. Um, but... Uh, That's our reasoning behind it. Here's an anonymous question. Why does God allow miscarriages? Um, Any bad thing that happens, anonymous, we say, why did God allow it? Well, he only allows it insofar as not stopping it. That's all. He just doesn't intervene in what's going to happen. And to understand that, we need to remember that we live in a fallen world. This is a world that is cursed by sin. Even creation, even the ground is crying out. What if we had a 7.6 or 7.7 earthquake in Japan in the last week? We we have uh, uh, typhoons and hurricanes and and uh, and this crummy mountain cedar. We get all this stuff. It's a fallen world. Um, and and while certainly we wish bad things wouldn't happen. That's a result of the fall. And um, we need to understand that God is good even when these difficult things occur. We need to understand that he alone understands our pain. And uh, it's not that God allowed it. It's just that he didn't stop it. And typically, and and God intervenes at times, but typically, um, God just wants us to know that he's there for us when we're hurting with a a depth of understanding about our pain that even we can't acknowledge. So it's not that he causes them. It's not that he says, well, you know, I'm not going to allow this one. I am going to allow this one. We can't figure out his will. His ways are higher than our ways. And we've got to trust in his instinctive goodness in our lives. So Anonymous, I'm sorry if you have had miscarriages. One of the things I can tell you, is that we have had a lot of women, we have a bunch of babies in our church, and they're always being born, it seems. Um, but we've also had a lot of women over the years who've had many miscarriages, and it is truly a heartbreaking thing, and the Lord shares your pain, just like at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus wept. I think when a woman and her husband suffers the loss of a child through a miscarriage, Jesus is weeping. I think he's saying as he did at the tomb, this isn't the way I intended things to be. And then he would 
exhort us to look up because things are going to be different. Let me also say this. We have had a lot of these women with lots of miscarriages who God has empowered to have a child. So don't stop trying. Just make it a matter of prayer. Not accusing God, but simply saying, God, please. Sort of like Hannah, only it wasn't a miscarriage thing with her. She just wanted a baby. She couldn't carry one. She couldn't get pregnant. God was waiting for just the right time. He not only had a child for her, but a very special child, a sanctified child. And of course, after Samuel, we know that she had other children. So Anonymous, I'm sorry if you're referring to your own experience, but keep looking up. God is faithful. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Andy writes, don't you think God was being unfair not to allow Moses into the promised land? Andy, my first response is God is never unfair. He cannot be unfair. It's, it's inconsistent with who he is, with his character and with his nature. So God who is just, we would say God who is fair, is always fair and there's no other way that he can be. Now, we might say, if your question was, don't you think God was being harsh not to allow Moses in the promised land? Well, that's a different question. And and maybe he was being a little harsh. But being harsh or being direct is not unfair. And in fact, Jesus said to whom much is given, much more is the context, much is required. And Moses, um, he, 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 he talked with God. Like a man talks to a friend face to face. And he didn't see his face, but that's how the conversations went. God spoke to millions of people through Moses. He was God's heart and he was God's voice. And that level of responsibility and in the end, when Moses lost his temper with the people of God, and every pastor needs to remember this. You know, the pastor that yells or the pastor that 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 berates his people, uh, who's always pounding on them, um, making them feel bad or guilty because they're not giving enough or they're not doing enough. Um, We need to be careful because we forfeit the right to represent God when we, who are given much, misrepresent God. And that's what Moses did. He misrepresented God. And God said, Moses, thank you, but now you're done. And that's when he turned everything over to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, let's get started. We're going to do this a different way now. And that's exactly what happened. So, no, God was never unfair. Uh, We might think, boy, that's pretty extreme. But uh, the reality is is that um, Moses understood. I'm sure he was sad, but he understood. By the way, we also know, Andy, he did get into the promised land. On the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, we know he got into the promised land. And at that moment, I think he would have looked at the Lord and said, boy, the wait was worth it. Thank you. Here's a question from Bryce. Bryce, this is a name I haven't heard on the program. Thank you for joining us. What is the difference between joy and happiness? Um, Bryce, happiness depends on our circumstances Happiness depends on how we feel at the time. 
Happiness depends on whether or not our expectations are being met. Happiness depends on how other people respond to us or how they're treating us. Joy depends only on the presence of the Lord. The Bible says in his presence is the fullness of joy. So joy is something that God gives us as a gift even when we're not happy. Paul says, with thanksgiving, make your requests be known to God. Sometimes we're praying for requests that seem to be so vital to us that that it's hard to be grateful. With joy in your heart, the joy of the Lord, then we're always grateful. And I think joy is the one thing that when we look around and things are going um, um, really, really hard for us when we're we're under attack, uh, maybe physically we're not doing too well, um, there's always this this permanent joy that never, ever leaves. And it's not dependent. I like to say it is independent of all other circumstances. And so our joy, Bryce, rather than on circumstance, rather than how we feel or what we have, joy depends only on the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the difference. Joy remains Good times and bad times, happiness comes and goes. And one of the reasons that we can't depend on how we feel is because when we are not happy, we don't feel joyful. And joy is a decision we make. I am going to stick with you, Lord, through thick and through thin, through good times and bad times. And when I do that, then your joy will never, ever leave me. Good question, Bryce. Thank you very, very much. Joyce asks, Pastor Ron, can you recommend your favorite Bible teachers and commentators? Joyce, this is one of the questions I have a really, really hard time with. Um, uh, I'll recommend some of them um, now, but uh, there are so many wonderful Bible teachers. Uh, uh, a new friend for me is a man named Gary Hamrick. He is a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, out of Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, and I'm really enjoying listening to him. I'm just getting to know him. I didn't even know he was a Calvary Chapel. Uh, you know, the East Coast guys go to a different conference and, than we do, and um, typically. And um, um, I'm really enjoying his stuff. I, I just think it's Cornerstone Chapel is the name of his church. And I really enjoy him. Uh, I've said on this program before, I love the late, great Adrian Rogers. Uh, I could listen to him in that voice all day long. Um, um, I like listening to Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, I I just so admire the integrity of his ministry. Uh, He doesn't do anything the way I would do it. um, But he is so much more gifted than I am that um, I just, he's, he's been a blessing. Um, uh, I've talked about this, Paul and I, together. Uh, I, I think this has been going on now for almost the, the, the 32 years I've been saved. Almost 33, by the way. Um, uh, Charles Stanley. Um, the older he got, the more I loved him. Uh, so we listened to him. So the Bible teacher everywhere. I've got some good friends, Calvary Chapel pastors, Joe Foch in Philadelphia, is uh, perhaps... Um, Calvary Chapel's best Bible teacher. Uh, So I'll listen to those guys. Now, commentators, 
are a little easier for me because there's so many good ones, even some who have differing views. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, um, I've liked him from the very beginning of my walk with the Lord. And he was a Presbyterian pastor out of Philadelphia, uh, a Reformed theologian. But you could never tell it just listening to him teach the Bible. It was just absolutely wonderful. So he was really, really good. And his commentaries are are, are excellent. My favorite all-time commentator is a man named F. F. Bruce, like Frank Frank, uh, F. F. Bruce, again, with the Lord now, um, but uh, everything that he wrote uh, has has blessed me immeasurably, and um, um, he's probably the person that I've read the most, um, but but there's a lot of a lot of guys, so, so, I mean, those are some real good ones. I can tell you this, uh, Joyce, there is a commentary series called the New International Commentary Series. Not to be confused with the New International Version of the Bible, but the New International Commentary Series. And the general editor of that is F.F. F. Bruce. But all of the commentaries, especially in the New Testament, I've only read a couple of them in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament... Um, I pretty much devoured them all when I was uh, developing in my walk with the Lord. And that commentary series is a must-have for everybody. There's another man, and this is a very specific direction, but um, um, Herbert Lockyer, L-O-C-K-Y-E-A-R. He is, a, um, um, the, the, I think, the, the foremost commentator on the parables of Jesus. Uh, in fact, all the parables of the Bible. So uh, they have been a real blessing. There's another one, Joyce, that I think as you read the Gospels, every single Christian ought to have in his or her collection, and that is um, The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. Now, it is public domain now, and you can get it for free online, but it's just one of those books that I think you ought to have in your library, and I don't think anybody should study the Gospels without a reference. It's not easy reading, but it's really, really, really good. So those are just some of them, and um, um, one of these days, John R.W. Stott, is another one, S-T-O-T-T, love his stuff, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, there's just some really, really good ones that have been very, very influential in my walk with the Lord. So, Joyce, thanks very much. I'll think of more off the top of the head. Uh, I'll come back to this question tomorrow, but let me just touch on it. I'll give you a quick answer, Benjamin. Benjamin's question, is there a two-state solution possible in Israel? The answer is no. It's not possible, and I will expound on that in the program tomorrow as we are out of time. The music is about to start. So again, I want to thank you for tuning in. Thank you for putting up with this mountain cedar voice that I've got, and I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. Um, You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And if the Lord wills it, I'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. I really appreciate you tuning in. God bless you. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.